three, the Communicator Award of Excellence winning podcast. Coming at you like Ronnie Max. Rylan and David are the ones for food, folks, and fun. Sit back and enjoy the good time. The great taste of the writer's block. Sure. There sure. you go. That was, that was high energy. I couldn't oh, do it. Also, I'm loving it. Uh, I am Rylan Grant, the one screaming screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Banjax and now Fa Sheng Origins over on Kickstarter. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left this time is? Always to the left. David Avaloni, screenwriter, filmmaker, comic book writer, coffee achiever. Love it. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, uh, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Alex DeCampi, uh, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Burns, and many more, uh, all brilliant folks. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it out. Uh, great show today. Do you have uh, plugs before we uh, uh, get to the Hall of yeah. Famer in our midst? When this drops, uh on Wednesday, uh, Elvira in Horrorland number one will be in stores in which uh, the Mistress of the Dark finds herself in the uh, trapped in the pocket dimension of the motion picture Psycho, uh, caught between trying to escape and trying to save Janet Lee's life. Because, you know, you don't save Janet Lee's life, no Jamie Lee Curtis. So it's, all, it's a very, 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 uh, I think we can all identify. And Rylan, what you got going on? Um, I believe when by the time this airs, uh, Fasheng Origins on Kickstarter will have just ended. Uh, however, there will be a backer kit site, so uh, pop on over to my social media at Ryland Grant. Uh, you know, it's on the screen or it's in the show notes, and uh, there will be directions for that. Um, badass wuxia kung fu epic, uh, historical drama, first and foremost. Uh, a comic book about something as well as a rollicking good ass kicking time. So uh, something for everybody. Um, one of the best things I've ever written, uh, if I said that or not. Um, but uh, go check it out. Go find it. Alrighty. Looks like my video skipped there for a second, but we're ready now to bring in today's guest, Shelly Bond. Howdy, howdy. Um, still screaming. <laughs> What an what an introduction to uh, a podcast! Nice job, Rylan. <laughs> likes to, to likes to kick it off with with a bang, and I like yeah. to kick it off with a, a spit take. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you saw me in the you saw me in the green room. I just I, I I had been mowing the lawn for a couple of hours. I was still trying to uh, jumpstart uh, the energy, and yeah, I like to you know I like to get the group going. I feel like we're all revved up. We're all you know the blood's pumping right. now. Little adrenaline uh, boost for everybody. So I think I feel yeah. like we're ready to have and a then, great conversation. I will do my best. <laughs> and I'm drinking my coffee could use a little a, a little Kahlua and and, uh, and vodka at this point. But <laughs> Shelly, tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself. Okay, basically I'm Shelly Bond and I've been curating, editing, and eating comic books since 1988, which is a very long time ago. One might <laughs> say when The Cure released Disintegration, that's when my career began yeah when action when action jackson uh uh graced the uh the, the big screen that's uh that's an action jackson poster uh and also a 1988 calendar so nice. we, can probably, we can probably find on that calendar when he started 
Thank you. Yes. And also the year, the, the year of my first January in Los Angeles. Eating comic books is good because they are delicious. True. They are. And they have all the essential uh, nutrients and minerals. A lot Indeed. of minerals. Uh, so tell us how you got started in it. What led you to, uh, to work in comics? Well, strangely enough, I was not a reader as a kid. My sister was the voracious reader who would just, um, you know, lock herself in her bedroom with romance novels. But I just, I wasn't into it. I was much more active. I took a lot of dance classes. I tapped, I did baton. And I, the only connection I really have to comics from an early stage has to be my love of Marine Boy and the Peanuts Gang. So sure. those were my early um, introductions to animation and to cartoons. But I didn't have any interest. And even in college, I studied film, video, video and audio production. And I was a DJ in college, which was like the greatest thing ever. But it wasn't until my screenwriting class in the fall of 1987 that I actually knew comic books were still being made. You know, I, I would, of course, see the Archie Digest at the supermarket, but it wasn't my thing. And my screenwriting teacher actually used a copy of Peter Gross's black and white comic book, Empire Lanes, to show us a shortcut to storyboarding. And my jaw dropped open because first of all, it was a black and white comic book, which I, I love black and white. I love op art. I love black and white film. I'm a huge French new wave buff. So of course I was very impressed with like what I thought was like a tiny movie on paper. But the fact that Peter Gross's female characters were actually not women with gigantic exploding breasts running around in bathing suits and high heels, like super impressed me. I was a mm -hmm. feminist at the time, of course. So I was like, wow, there's a female character who was a knight in this book. And I thought, this is like super cool. So that was my introduction. And there was a kid who sat next to me in class named Will Dennis, which is a name some of you might be familiar with because he actually is a comic book editor, but he was first a, a kid in my screenwriting class who worked at the comic book shop. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, hey, if you like that, you should come to the comic book shop in downtown Ithaca because you won't believe your eyes. It's a great time to get into comics. Sure enough, I took his advice and that might be the only advice of his I've ever taken, <laughs> but it was, it, it was good. I went to comics for collectors and I, I walked in like Dorothy and Oz and off of the shelves jumped books like Love and Rockets, Electra Assassin, as in Bill Sienkiewicz and Frank Miller's sure. tremendous uh, achievement, Moonshadow, The Doom Patrol, all of these wonderful quirky books that were for people like me, like a true weirdo. And that's where it began. A year later, I was lucky enough to be hired as Diana Schutz's editorial assistant at Kamiko the Comic Company. That only happened because when I graduated from college with a degree in communications, my first job all summer was working as a DJ at an AM station. And DJing at an AM station was absolutely nothing like being a DJ on a really cool college radio station. Sure. So I was bored to death. And I said to my dad, let me move to Philadelphia. If I don't have a job in a month, you can just take me back home and throw me in my teenage bedroom. So I got really lucky. I got an apartment in Center City, Philadelphia that happened to be one block away from my three favorite things, 
Fat Jack's Comic Crypt, TLA <laughs> video, and also a, a really strange stereo store that had almost reasonable CDs. And so that was really the beginning of my life in comics. I was fortunate enough to get in on the ground floor with a terrific editor. Diana Schutz is someone whose name you might not hear as much as Karen Berger's, but she is equally, uh, it, I would say she is equally important in, in comics history with Karen and with Jeanette Kahn as mm -hmm. one of the three women who really paved the way for more women like me in comics. And Kamiko was doing great at the time, if I remember correctly. I know I was reading some of their titles. Uh, yes. It was, Brent, the funny thing is, I always thought they were called Comic Co. Well, and you and everyone else. Having dinner with Bob Shrek roughly 30 years later, he pronounced it that way. And I was like, it's Kamiko. Okay, good, good to know. I've, I've learned well, to say. Uh, well, I also want to say, my wife spent a lot of time in Philly. She went to uh, Temple. Okay. And I think every cool person who has ever lived in Philly worked at TLA at one oh, point yeah. or another in their life. I don't think you could avoid it. It's a, uh, you oh, know, very cool. cool gig. I mean, I, I was able to not only rent so many, you know, amazing foreign and indie films mm. on VHS, of course, but when they, yep. um, when they had their sales, my God, I got a copy, a half inch copy of Christian F, which is my number one all time favorite film. I think I paid That's like a Bowie overdose movie, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. Not to, reduce, I, not to reduce it too much, but yeah. I think I paid three dollars for it, and it was right. actually the uh, German version, and I was a German minor. So you know that film I've I've memorized and still sometimes comes up. You know, a, a reason to use my German. Um, that yeah, that location where I lived was was seminal to my development. Um, I guess to my continued development, because it was when I discovered David Bowie in 1974, Rebel Rebel on the radio. That's mm -hmm. really when I wanted to grow up and be British. So I settled for being an <laughs> Anglophile and then marrying my favorite British comic book artist. <laughs> right. so well, so we, you know, we, we, we do what we can to achieve our dreams. I, 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 I do love that each one of us, we have these, um, I don't know, media churches, you know? Where, where we really got our educations. I mean, I, I went to a very good school, you know, uh, I went to the University of Michigan. I learned more at Liberty Street Video and, um, and you know, at, uh, you know, the Comics Kingdom uh, than I did in, you know, four years at that school. Um, you know, that, that was, it, you know, those places and the people that frequented there and the clerks that would recommend, Oh, Oh, you like that? You gotta, you gotta see this. You gotta, you gotta yeah. pick this up. You gotta read that. Um, that's a big reason why I'm a storyteller now is because mm -hmm. of those people and those films and those books and just those places. Um, yeah. And it's weird to see, I mean, they're, um, I mean, a lot of those places are gone now. Right. Uh, yes. And it's, it's, it's pretty tough to handle. It really is. And I think that today's generation, not to come across as like an, a, an editing fossil, but today's generation is missing one thing that was so important to me growing up. And that's the thrill of the quest. Mm. You know, sometimes I would, I would discover an ad for a comic or a film that was not available in the States. And so that was the one thing that like when I spent a semester in London, that was like the one thing I was looking for in London, you know, where I would like pound the pavement to find that bootleg, you know, or that uh, Michael Moorcock hardcover, you know, of a Jerry Cornelius tale. I mean, those are the things that 
made life worth living. I'm trying my best to impart that to my son who is 17 and just, you know, anything that he's interested in, it's at his fingertips. And I still think that that you don't earn it. You know, you don't, to me, that's something that's sad about the generation that we have. So it's down to us to continue to educate, whether you have kids or just you mentor someone, you got to pay it forward by saying, Hey, look, don't rely on information overload, you know, give yourself, put some time aside to actually excavate, you know, actually unearth some buried treasure because it makes you a better person. And I think a better writer and artist. Yeah, that, 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 that buried treasure thing is a great point. I mean, you know, when we, you talked about the thrill of the hunt and the thrill of the hunt was definitely a thing. You know, when I was a, when I was younger, I had a list of things. So, you know, the, these are the VHS tapes I'm looking for. These are the, you know, the, the cassette tapes I'm looking for, the CDs I'm looking for, uh, the comic books I'm looking for, you know, huge list. You know, you go to a convention and you're going through all the back issue bins. Oh, you know, I, I need Spider-Man 297, you know. Um, that was always great. But then there was this other thing that happens um, where you kind of get struck by lightning. You know, you go to the video store without a plan. Yes. And, and, you know, again, sometimes it's the clerk that's like, Hey, this is in, um, you know, it's this, it's this film by this guy named Hal Hartley that nobody knows about and it's going to change your life. Yeah. Um, Been there, done that. Yeah. 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 And then it does that. I actually, one of my first jobs in film, I was working for Hal Hartley in New York. It was awesome. Um, What film did you work on? Um, I, I worked on a film called uh, Kimono, which was a short film that aired on German television. Uh, but, but it was it was kind of right uh, it was right after the Henry Fool time. Um, yeah, and then um, and then we produced um, we produced two other films for different filmmakers. It was kind of Hal setting his uh, his proteges up, um, and 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 th- th- those were interesting too. One was called The Cloud of Unknowing, which is a little pretentious, but but you know it was it was done by this uh, really interesting filmmaker named Richard Silvarnus. Um, it, beautiful film, uh, didn't make a lot of sense, but it was gorgeous. And <laughs> uh, you know it, it was just cool to to do that stuff. But um, you know, but but then also you know you go to the video store and it was like, let me just look at the boxes. You know, let me look at the box art and the box art jumps off at you, you know, oh, look, ninjas, you know. <laughs> that's the same with album cover art and with a comic book cover, you know, so you have about three seconds to captivate whether you're a VHS or an album cover or a comic book cover. And that's why editing is so important, not to not to be so bold and to jump into editing. But man, you know, the editor's job is so undervalued and underrated. And I cannot debunk that enough. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why I wrote this little thing called Filth and Grammar, because I wanted to demystify the role of the comic book editor in today's world. Because right now, if you if you held a knife to my back and you said, you have to explain it as one thing, I would say it's equivalent to being a showrunner. Because TV and streaming are so popular right now, and I think that that's the best correlation I can make to modern entertainment. The editor of a comic book is a Jill of all trades and a master of all of it. And what you don't master, you have to fake and you have to be fast on your feet. Mm-hmm. It's, about, it's about being a triage surgeon and also being a quick idea person. And I, and I have to say that it is not for the faint hearted and that the really great editors never get the credit and they never make the money that they should. So I'm hoping that with Filth and Grammar, I've created the kind of handbook I wish I had in the 90s when I was starting out. And I'm hoping people will take this book and just pave new frontiers. 
Mm-hmm. I I was very excited to see you launch that Kickstarter. I backed it. I am oh, eager, thank you. eagerly awaiting my book uh, because it is something that um, it is a, a, a not well understood. I mean, I think in general, I don't know that there's a job description in show business that people do understand. Yeah, <laughs> you know, really, they have a lot of illusions about how things work and and how their favorite stuff is made, and um, <clears throat> they have no idea that the editor, the, that idea they loved, that they pin on their favorite auteurist may have come from a PA on set, may have been a suggestion from a comic book editor, may have been a suggestion from the person in the edit bay saying, you know what? I mean, it's I watched deleted scenes in movies. I was a professional film editor for like 30 years before I became a comic book maker. And when I watch deleted scenes, it's almost painful for me because I can so... Um, I always hear the conversation. I was watching the the deleted scenes from Young Frankenstein. There's a there's a scene with the reading of Frankenstein's will, and still <laughs> watching the scene, I'm like, I couldn't pay attention because all I was thinking is Mel that we need to get to Gene Wilder. This is like four minutes, and it's not that funny. And let's just let's just get right to Gene and keep this thing moving. And, you know, maybe Mel Brooks went, oh, yeah, of course, that's great. Maybe it was a week of screaming fights. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? And that's what's, that's what's so invigorating and exciting about editing in general. In college, I loved hot splicing. And, you know, I loved the physicality of it, of actually just, like, clipping the film and using, you know, the glue and scraping off the emulsion, piecing it together. Really great editors are you know, they, they're craftspeople and that they, they have to be, they have to have a visual acuity. They also have to have a great ear, even in comics, even though we don't have audio and maybe even a sharper ear because of that, because it's the rhythm, whether you're curating or editing an anthology, which has so many disparate types of stories um, and how they look visually and in tone, or whether it's just a regular um, comic book. I won't call it a floppy, by the way. I'm old, but I'm not that old. And I hate <laughs> the term floppy, but I love periodical. So, you know, whatever the format is, a great editor follows the rhythm. And, and that's why I also say that being an editor is like being a DJ. And that's another part of me that is like so close to my heart. I'm not sure if you knew about what I um, kickstarted last year. It was a book called Heavy Rotation. Have you guys heard about it? No, I think I missed yeah. it. Wow. It was a love letter to 80s college radio. And I pulled mm. in about a dozen of my old college DJ friends um, to write some of the stories. And I also um, hit up a few of my favorite artists <clears throat> and got a chance to hire some new artists, some people that are sensational. Um, one of the things that I see uh, lacking today in comics, um, at least from where I'm sitting as a a freelance editor and as a self-publisher, I don't see companies around me going out of their way to find and develop new talent. And it's sad. I think a lot of editors haven't been trained. And mm -hmm. so I don't want to say they're lazy. Some of them are, but some of them just don't know how to do it. And yeah. so they, they rely on their friends. They rely on um, professionals who might owe their bosses favors and they're not getting out there and finding the art stars 
and I mean by stars, I mean writers and artists and letterers and colorists of tomorrow. That's another reason why I did this. You know, not to say that I'm all that, but any chance I get to work with new talented people, I'm going to grab it. And so mm -hmm. the genesis of Filth and Grammar, if I may, it was it started out as a memoir. You know, I started writing it in the summer of 2016. And it wasn't until I saw a young British artist named Imogen Mangle, who, by the way, graduated from art school a year ago. When I saw her work, I knew what Filth and Grammar needed to become. It went from being like a bitch manifesto to being a book on the craft, something mm -hmm. that I plant my flag and say, here, let me pay it forward. Because this is what I learned on the job. And I asked the people who helped me along the way, you know, writers you may have heard of like Neil Gaiman, Mike Carey, tremendous storytellers like Peter Gross and Chris Pacello. They're all in here. They give me pro tips, Jill Thompson. I learned more from them on the job when I would edit books like Sandman or Shade the Changing Man than I did from anyone who hired me or imparted info to me because the job was all consuming. It was 10 hours a day. It was nonstop. And I was raised in a family business. So we didn't take sick days. You know, my dad would say I would get up to go to, 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 go to school and I wouldn't feel well. He'd say, go to work. You'll feel better by noon. You know, there was like no quitting and there were no excuses in my family. And by the way, the family business was not glamorous. It was dry cleaning. So when I tell you I can press a pair of pants, and mm -hmm. sort of <laughs> I'm not a diva. Anyone who thinks that the Shelley Bond imprimatur is about being a princess is so wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, I get my hands dirty and I throw red ink. This is Imogen Mangle, by the way. This is her artwork. Wow. Yeah, that's great. If I may, I want to show you. I want to show you one of her sequential pages. So Filth and Grammar went from being um, a memoir about my life in comics to being how to make comics from idea to execution, 10 chapters with pro tips and do's and don'ts and true editing crimes, and also interludes that I call a day in the, in the life of a comic book ingenue. And Jen illustrates those sections. So you will see images of, me taking my work home when I shouldn't, which sometimes <laughs> resulted in me imagining that I was surrounded in bed with these people. Oh, well. <laughs> so this is what happens when a real editor of comics is introduced to a young woman who just graduated from illustration school in England. And I see kernels of genius and I want to art direct her which is also editing, by the way. It's something I was teased about at DC relentlessly. Every designer would run and hide when they heard they were working with me because I had standards and I came with a vision. And even my boss sometimes would say, Shelly, you have to ease up a little bit. You're not the art director. And I disagreed. Great comic book editors have to know anatomy, perspective, color coding, color theory, composition. I mean, if you don't know that stuff, you better learn it because it's the job. So when I saw Jen's work, I didn't have a script. I wasn't really um, doing the type of editing where I was working with other writers. My husband and I started off Register Press to, to actually put our personal work out for Kickstarter. So I, I saw her work and I knew at that moment 
that Filth and Grammar needed a subtitle because I had to work with Jen and I had to figure out a way to tell both my early days in comics stories and also the craft. And so that's the real backstory of the book. And I have to say, we got it done in eight months. We almost nailed my deadline, which was way too tight. I had two editors. I was almost on time, but COVID came in and kicked our butts. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, uh, fortunately for us, the books have landed at a warehouse in Compton. There are 2,500 of these. I'd <laughs> say uh, two-thirds of them are softcover. The rest are hardcover. 3,400 pounds of goodness waiting to land on my head so that yeah. I can really distribute them because we do personal service here at Off Register Press. You know, we, uh, the thing I always say to people about uh, kickstarting is that you have to really watch your dollars because they just slip through your fingertips. You don't make a lot of money kickstarting even when it looks like you do. Mm -hmm. And I have to watch every penny because I tend to, as my husband will tell me every time I've done five Kickstarters, I go a little overboard with the merch. Yeah, well, that's great. I can't help myself, but I like, I'm a, I'm a sticker designer now, you know, and I love doing hang tags. And, yeah. you know, I've not had, I've not had a sweater that doesn't need a pin. So I, I talk about that in my class that's coming up on self-publishing. I will warn people not to get taken in, you know, not to be charmed by too much merch. And I fall for it every time. You know, I get seduced by it because it's just such a great thing. But yeah, it's, and it's it's something to watch out for. It's it's fun to have your own stuff like that. It's <laughs> it's kind of irresistible, you know, to, to make to make your own stuff. I mean, we've the self-published thing I did with uh, Kevin Eastman, the drawing blood and the radically re rearranged Ronan ragdolls we came this close to going the action figure route and i was like let's let's sell awesome. some comic books yeah. first, and then then we'll then we'll move on to action figures in a the, the, yeah the, I, I mean people would buy the hell out of them i would buy the hell out of them oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, those become stars yeah, yeah 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 for me the the thing that i i've done three kickstarters and the thing that i spent way too much time on uh it was the trading cards you know i decided that i was going to do a, a rylan grant versus trading card set and you know, release three or four of them every go round. And you know, when people do those, it's usually like, okay, well, let's let's throw a you know, let's throw an image of our character on there. Let's throw an and I'm like, absolutely not. You know, each one has to be a masterpiece in itself. And I'm gonna yeah. we're gonna have stats on the back, a huge write up. Oh, this one's gonna be a wanted poster. This one's gonna be an old NES game box. This is right. and this one's gonna be the sticker card, the, the, yeah. the special sticker card. Yeah. It's I, we, we, we did a garbage pail kit. Yeah, yeah, just like that. Yeah, yeah, you so. can be swept away. And yeah. every time I do a campaign, my husband will be like, "Okay, remember." And I'm like, "I know we're not doing a lot of merch. We're <laughs> not doing it." Meanwhile, you know, then I start doing things like this, a little sticker and whatever. You know, yeah. I'm done. So let's just say I also think distribution is important because I want to write personal notes. And I want to be sure that the books are packaged correctly because I don't want people to get crushed corners. Yep. I don't want there to be any moisture getting in. I mean, the, these hardcovers are very expensive to produce. You know, we print our books in Korea. You know, I'm all about the Smithsonian binding so that it's, it, it lays flat. I have not yet met a trade paperback that doesn't lose a little bit of information in what we call the creep or the mm -hmm. spine. 
I do my best. I push pages out. I talk to the printer. I highlight pages. You just can't get away with it. I'd rather see two or three pages that are a little harder to read than an entire book. Like some of the mainstream publishers, they don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. But I implore you to go onto your shelves, look at any mainstream or just even general indie publisher, open up the book and count how many pages you have to craft the spine to read. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing it right now with my own book. <laughs> I, I give some tips in Filth and Grammar and also in my class, my online class that I'm teaching in June, but I'm straight up with people. There, I've, I've yet to meet a perfect book. The only perfect book you can have is when it's with Smite's own binding, and they do not offer it for trade paperbacks. So my trades have French flaps, which is a very beautiful thing. But mm -hmm. be warned that if you're going for perfection and you're doing a soft cover, very, very rare not to have at least a handful of those spreads that, you know, you need to push, you need to push the material out a little bit, but when you push it out too far, you might get cropped on the sides. Very tricky thing, but being aware of it is the first step to correcting it. Yes. Like so many things. And yeah, I wanted <laughs> to ask, I don't, I don't think I'm not familiar with another book in existence on comic book editing specifically. Like, did you get there first? I because yeah, I've I've read books by editors, but right. all of the books I've read by editors are about how to write comic, right. like how to draw comic, right? Yeah, the Denny O'Neill book, and some yeah. of those books are great. A lot of them are very writing one hundred and one, with about five percent of it actually being specifically about comic books. Yes. Uh, some of it, like you know, how to build a character. It's like. I was already there. Can you just tell me about comic books? Like I'd like yes. to know comic books. Well, David, I, I really, really hope that Filth and Grammar is a book you're going to rave about because I did my best in this book to capture everything from the editor's point of view, but also give tips and tricks along the way because I'm hoping that the book appeals to every reader. So if you're if you're into comics and you eventually want to be an editor, great. This is the absolute book for you. If you're a writer and you want to up your writing game and kind of understand like what your artist does for a living, this is the book for you because we go through the stages. You know, not only do we talk about organizational strategies for editors who have 15 books on the go or two books on the go, but we also show things like what does it, you know, what is a rough lookout look like? You know, like this is a rough page by Mark Buckingham. He roughs out the lettering. I recommend that to everyone who wants to be involved in any part of making comics. I'm a letterer now. I'm a very no frills letter letterer, but I love Adobe uh, Illustrator and InDesign and I can't help myself. It's the best way to figure out when you're a writer, you need to know how much is going to fit on the page. And let me tell you, it is less than you think. And I, I, in my class, I have an exercise for every student that will, I hope, beat this into them before they go out to write, draw, letter, color, comic. But you have to think about economy of space. You want the illustration to be big. I am not into, I mean, I better be careful when I say this. Vertigo started as a writer-driven comic book imprint, but when I landed there, I was determined to bring the balance back because I had just come out of like, you know, spending 40 years of my life wanting to be a filmmaker. 
and I was going to bring visual panache no matter what. So part of what I like to think I've helped imbue and instill is a way to make pages more visceral and dynamic, but thinking through spreads that don't involve close-ups of people getting punched in the face. Because to me, that's a waste of a spread. But granted, I'm not into superheroes. So, you know, maybe for superhero comics and superhero editors, that's cool and that's fine. But when I tell you that I challenge people with spreads, this is a good example, because I wanted to do a, a page where there were small panels that also allowed the characters to walk through. And so this brilliant artist, Jen, you know, managed to take my writing and my notes and reinterpret things that blew my mind. And so I think that we did a pretty good job with page layouts and trying to explain how it's not just about the, the panel itself on the page, but it's about the composition of every panel on the page and how it works to get you forward to the page turn and then how it, get, it actually pulls you in into the environment that you should be immersed in. Yeah, I'm, I'm frankly amazed at how often I pick up a big two comic book and I, and the eye trace is bad. Yeah. And the yeah. storytelling is, I'm like, I don't know which panel comes next guys. And this is a friggin' Marvel comic. I should definitely be able to know which panel comes next and what the story is and who's talking to who. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you, you, you do, you do ultimately see a lot of lazy work out there. Um, and I think a lot of it, if I may, um, yeah. I think a lot of it is because we're at a stage in the world right now where you've got giant corporations either sending in the wrecking ball and the wrecking crew or eating companies up alive. And they are getting rid of people from the top down because their salaries. So you take, not that I'm mentioning any names, but you take a young ingenue who has to climb their way up the ladder, maybe work twice as hard if they're, you know, from uh, a gender that's not, no offense, but, you know, white oh. male. Yeah, yeah. And those people work twice as hard. They work three levels above what they're paid. When they finally get to that place where they've earned it, they're lopped off at the head because they're a salary or their position that's up here. And companies don't know who they are or care who they are. And they're like, just get rid of these people. So I'm speaking very metaphorically because it could be in any business. It could be in sports entertainment. It could be in comic books. It could be in film. But what we're seeing is there's no training anymore because the people that know their stuff are gone. And so what I hope with Filth and Grammar, what I hope I do and, I, and I'm going to show you another example. I try with each chapter to give just general tips on the key things that I look for on a penciled page. And we walk through a specific story through the book that Mark Buckingham was kind enough to draw for me. A true story that happened to me at San Diego Comic-Con one year. And it involved Neil Gaiman. One of us might not have gotten out alive, and I'm not going to say who. <laughs> That story is important because we go from script and we show script format to the rough, to the pencil, to the ink, to the coloring, to the lettering, all the way through. And I explain to the reader the key things that I think are necessary to look for. Two big ones, two big things that I think people mix, miss in comics are proximity. If you don't know where you are and who you're with, and where you are in relation to another person or thing that's critical on the page, you lost your reader, you're done. That is not taught. 
I think foreground, midground, background, vanishing point, horizon line, not taught. Tangents, for the love of God, will somebody please teach tangents? Because, you know, if you're an artist, if, if you miss it, it's understandable because you are in the weeds. You are in it close up. If your editor misses it, that's that's wrong. That's bad. That's your fault. Yeah. So I, I've done a couple of Hey Amateur pages, and one of them is how to obliterate tangents. Mm. I'm going to look for you right now. Uh, but are you familiar with my book, Hey Amateur? No, I haven't read that. Hey Amateur, um, if I can quickly tell you, it's not one that I, um, I have it near me. It, talk amongst yourselves while <laughs> I get it. You can talk about me. We're just okay. sorry that the, the folks on uh, the audio won't be seeing how beautiful your room is. Well, I, well, why thank you. Well, then they should look at the audio version, right? And yeah. we'll have that available. Go to YouTube and watch this. So, hey, amateur. Available on YouTube.com. So, hey, amateur is how to do anything in nine panels. It's a love letter to the nine panel grid. It is basically, it was my way of doing an anthology and hitting up a bunch of my friends in comics and also branching out and educating. Because if there's one thing comics can do so well that it doesn't do enough is educate behind your back. Sure. So it's uh, it's 160 pages. It's over 50 creators teaching a skill in nine panels. Now, I've got a good mix of practical and peculiar. So you've got how to change a tire, how to make an Indian curry, a brilliant British um, artist, Dil Rajman, who I adore. Uh, passed along a family recipe that his mom taught him. But then I have like Alex Pacnadel and Simon Bisley doing How to Train Your Doppelganger, which I'm sure is one of my top five favorites in the book. And, and Gail Simone, How to Break the Internet. I mean, you know, you can't make this. He's an that. He is. <laughs> so I tend to do anthologies that um, I hopefully are, hopefully are unexpected and interesting, but also I'd like to say are beautiful. You know, with the spot gloss, the Mike Allred yeah. cover. Um, you know, templating books is a great way to ground them. I think a lot of anthologies fail because people just throw them together. And I think you have to really have a vision. There's sound and vision in comics. And if you don't have both of those things, you shouldn't be in comics. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to think that if you're doing your job, you're thinking around the whole project. What's the subject? What's the tone? What can I bring in that's new? You know, I have, I have teams from South Africa, Greece, Denmark. I mean, talk about diversity. I mean, if I can say that like at Vertigo, this was never a problem for us. I'd like to think we were part of the cutting edge and leading edge of tackling subject matter like gender identity, you know, through Sandman, um, through Shade, you know, different sexual interests by, you know, bisexuality. Um, we were doing that back in the early nineties when it wasn't done in comics. And so I kind of like the fact that I think the rest of the world is catching up, but I think we still need to do more and we're not as inclusive as we should be. So I like to think I go out of my way in my projects to make sure there's a good gender balance and there's a, a really good tone um, of, of, points of view and i hope that especially in a book like hey amateur there's something for everyone in here this was a blast to put together this actually was delivered to the warehouse in march of 2020 and i don't need to say anything else about that
<laughs> yeah. I know what you guys are thinking. It was 1,700 books. Oh. And they, they took about anywhere between four and seven months to get the, to the, their backers because they, they landed in containers. Mm -hmm. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. Is Now, have you offered Hey Amateur outside of the the crowdsource world? Are you publishing it uh, you know, through Diamond or anything or through bookstores? David, I'm so glad you asked that question. Truth about Hey Amateur is that I did it uh, first as a Kickstarter hardcover, but I did it while I was still with Blackground. I did mm. put out the soft cover and it actually reverts back to me completely in the beginning of February of next year. So my goal is to actually make it an off-register production and actually expand it and do, you know, bring, bring on some new people, some new ideas. Um, but I'm looking into distribution deals right now with mm -hmm. a few different companies because off register, I think has a lot of really interesting um, books. They're not just mine, by the way, my husband, Philip Bond, who is my favorite artist in comics since 1993. I don't know if you know his work, but he did kill your boyfriend. He did an arc of the invisibles. Uh, his book geezer is being finished as we speak. And that was a Kickstarter about the Brit pop scene about the greatest mm -hmm. band you've never heard of because they were the never made it Britpop pop band, but it's their antics. <clears throat> so we have lots of different um, books and also stickers and merch and things on our shop at offregister.press. So we do sell things, you know, from our home, but we are looking for distribution and I think we have a lot to offer. So fingers crossed. Uh, cool. Next time. So, we'll be so IDW did produce this off cover version of Hey Amateur. But you get it back February next year and you hope to put it out once again. Yes. Great. Great. I mean, it's, and what oh, it, it's, it's still available right now, David. You can order it. I have plenty of hardcovers in my house. So you can order it. I've got soft covers too. And, and also, so it can be ordered directly from you instead yeah, of from IDW. Great. Yes. Oh, yeah. IDW has no longer has any inventory. So the rest of their stock is here. And I have, of course, the beautiful hardcovers. And you can also get um, the download, the digital download. We, we try to really um, provide any reading experience, even though I'm a paper purist. Yeah, I, the comics that I digitally download tends to be things that I'm more interested in knowing the story than, yeah. as, than appreciating as a work of art. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Like if yeah. I'm trying to keep up with what Iron Man's been doing these days, I'll read that online. That's fine. But something like Hey Amateur seems like it's a bookshelf piece. It, you know, it's a thing that belongs on your bookshelf. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I also make sure that my hardcovers have this beautiful ribbon. So oh, nice. gotta have the placeholder, man. Right? Yeah. If, if you're not a binge reader, this yeah. one's for you. Yeah. Yeah, no, that looks like a great. And are you going to go the same route with Filth and Grammar after the Kickstarter supporters get theirs? Will it also be continually offered from somewhere else or from you or from? Yes. The answer to that question is yes, all of the above. Um, right now, um, I always overprint and it's yeah. my pleasure. So once the backers get their copies, I'll have the remainders up on the website. And we will also have the digital version, but I like to give my original backers first dibs on everything. And I also like to give them a special price. So 
I'm sure I was crazy, but I gave the digital version away for $10. I mean, I really feel like I gave it away. So it's going to be more on the website because I lost so much money because of, you know, the little Shelly stickers. <laughs> that only my dad is probably going to want to put up and, you know, sure. office because he still works at 84 years old. We can't get him to stop. Wow. And that's with my cleaning business. It is, but he's also a swing musician. So no. if, if I may just give him a plug, he's been uh, in charge of the swing fever dance band since 1980. And I call him a, a swing musician stroke dry cleaner. <laughs> and where is, where is he based? Where is that happening? Well, it's in outside of Philadelphia in mm -hmm. Reading, Pennsylvania. He spends half the year in Florida though. So he's, he's, he's in many different bands depending on where he's, you know, existing. What does he play? He plays sax, clarinet, and piano, and he can sell a song. Nice. He, sing, he sings three songs in the band. So those are the songs that you can only imagine that I know by heart as well. <laughs> so I was raised on show tunes and, uh, sure. and on swing music, which is pretty much why I had to rebel and get into punk and post-punk and new wave. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I just did a. I, I'm I'm an '80s kid as well. I was born in '65, and I just did a a piece for Z2. I adapted a Blondie song called "Dreaming." Oh wow! As you a comic, that song, right? And and Lisa Weber is. I got her. Uh, I got her 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 layouts the other day, and they're they're gorgeous. And it's gonna be a it's gonna be a beautiful little piece. But like you, the moments in this business where you're sitting around going, right now somewhere in New York. Debbie Harry is reading my script and going, yeah, this is okay. <laughs> like it's, it's hard to get past that sometimes and go, that's actually a thing that happened now. And I have yeah, to. Yeah. I, I, Matt Dillon is currently learning the jazz clarinet because of a script that I wrote. He is, he is locked up in a room learning how to play jazz clarinet. <laughs> he obviously needs to meet Shelly's dad. Yeah. And that, uh, and, and that, that tickles me. Like sometimes I'm feeling bad and then I can remind myself, Oh, well, but Matt's learning the jazz clarinet. Yeah. So you got that going for you. Right? It's the little things that keep yeah. us going. It's, 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 certainly not, it's certainly not the money. No. no, it's not. It's definitely not the money, but I was going to, you know, I, before I was going to say, you know, that, uh, I've been lucky that I, I get to find new people for some of my projects and I, you know, the visible women hashtag on Twitter has been very helpful to me for that. And working with people, you know, a pretty di diverse crew all around the world that I find that way that I meet at cons, you know, it's sure there, there are so many talented people out there for you to find and work with. And yeah, I feel like, especially at the big two, there's sort of a calcified, you know, it's the same mm -hmm. five people over and over again, doing all of the work. And it's, it's, it, it, even if even the geniuses that do that, you, not everything is genius when you're on every book. Yeah, it, it's it's not even the big two. I mean, it's it's you know it's the five, six, seven, eight biggest comic companies that it's like yeah. okay, well, we work with this handful of people, and everyone else can wait outside. Yeah. Well, I think I don't know if you guys read any of the Black Crown books when they were published. We did ten in under two years, which was massive. And that yeah. was only accomplished because my husband, um, who wasn't even planning to do daily work on Black Crown, actually came in and just became this design apocalypse and did 
the best graphic design I've ever seen since, let's say, Jamie Reed invented the Sex Pistols <laughs> album cover design. Um, not trying to blow smoke, but it's just a fact. Um, when we did Black Crown Books, you know, the whole conceit of Black Crown, which Chris Ryle, big props to him for bringing me in to do this, yeah. the conceit was, I want to take veteran creators and pair them up with newcomers because they both could rub off on each other, hopefully in the right way. So you had Peter Milligan and Tess Fowler, who I thought were a terrific team on Kid Lobotomy. And, you know, you had Teeny Howard, who was, you know, I think just won a Top Cow writing contest. I hired her because I thought she was terrific and I paired her up with Gilbert Hernandez on wow. Assassinistas. So, you know, that was the, I looked at it like the Hollywood studios. I wanted to just get my hands on four or five really great up and coming new voices in comics or new artists and bring in some of my favorite usual suspects who I thought were talented, but maybe need needed uh, you know to dust off and get a bit of a new patina. And I have no regrets. Like I am so proud of those books. Uh, a lot of people didn't see them. I came into IDW's um, publishing plan just as people left. You know, you yeah. had people that just quit or were, were let go. And while Chris was 200% like in our court and helped us as much as he could, I don't think that we had enough marketing and promotional support for people to know we were out there, which is sad because it's always yeah. going to come down to that. You know, when I... When I pitched DC Comics The Minx Line in 06, it was the first young adult imprint um, that teenagers could call their own. You know, people like Mariko Tamaki got their start there, Cecil Castellucci, Rebecca Donner, who's like this huge, you know, national best-selling novelist. They cut their teeth there and the company pulled the rug out after two years and a normal book publisher would never do that after two years. You get at least four. Yeah. And I think that's a big mistake comic book companies make. Two years is nothing. You know, two years, you're just getting warmed up. So um, I yeah, say that. There's also that there's a there's a, a rush of excitement to get the books out. I mean, in, I grew up, my father was a novelist and I grew up with traditional, uh, traditional book publishing in that world. And the idea of like promoting something for the first time three months before it's in stores that's insane in the book world. That's insane in the movie world. That's insane in the television world. You'd be given six months minimum and really, yeah. you talk to a real book publisher, they're like, so we love your book. A year and a half from now, it'll come out. We're gonna start promoting it next month. You know, that's that's how you do it right. And it is, you know, it's like when actors say, I'm not paid to act, I'm paid to go on the, you know, the press tour. It, it really is the gig, the, the gig. Yeah. The artwork is great. If you do the best artwork in the world and don't know how to promote it, don't yeah. have the window to promote it, no one will ever see it and it will be like it never existed. And that's the saddest thing in the world. It is. It is. But I'm going to flip that because I'm a positive person. <laughs> and I'm going to say that's what makes making comics now the best time to be making comics because we have to be our own social media advisors. We yeah. have to have our own branding campaign. And that's always been my philosophy. My dad um, raised my sister and I in his image, and he pretty much, you know, did not baby us. I don't know if he knew really what he was going to do with two girls. So he raised us like we were boys. 
And we just were like kicked in the butt just to get on with it. So there was no pussyfooting around. We're very, um, call it like we see it kind of people. And I hope that that's done me well in comics because I think a lot of people in comics are afraid to deliver the notes. And if, if that's you and you want to be a comic book editor, don't. Because you have to be able to hire the right people and fire them before it's too late. Yeah. I mean, that's just the truth. So if you can't, if you can't do that, you are in the wrong field and you might be a wonderful person, but yeah. you're not going to be a great editor. Um, back to social media. The reason why it's important right now is you have to hustle. And that's what kickstarting is all about. Mm -hmm. I teach some of this in my upcoming course. Um, if I can give a shameless plug, I in fact got it here. So I'm teaching a four week zoom class on editing comics and self publishing. If you go here, www.offregister.press slash FG online. You'll find out more about it. It's four weeks. It's Saturdays from 10 to noon Pacific standard time. So I picked that time because I thought it was a good time for a global outreach. Sure. So if you're in England, you can, you can attend the live class and then you can go out and party. If you're on the West coast, you can have your coffee or tea with me from 10 to noon. The great thing about the course is it's four weeks. If you can't make it, it will be recorded so that I'll send you a video link the day after the class. You can watch it on your own time. I also have a Sunday Q&A. It's one hour where you can ask me questions about the class from the previous day or questions on editing in general. And it must be said, David, I got only am doing this class because of your sister. Now, your sister, yes. It's all her fault in the best possible way. I love your sister. She had promoted a TV writing class by Pilar Alice. My friend Pilar. I went to college with Pilar. Okay. So then it's your fault too. Yeah. I, I took, I saw your sister promote Pilar's class. And this is about three months ago. I was writing my second book. Filth and Grammar is the first of a trilogy, by the way. So the second book is called Fast Times in Comic Book Editing. I was writing it and I was tired of being in my head. I was enjoying it, but I needed somebody to like, you know, hit me with like, I don't know, the ice cube challenge. Your, your sister promoted Pilar's TV writing class. I saw it was $250. I didn't blink because I thought that was cheap. It was four Saturdays for two hours. It was a Q and A on Sunday. I was in the class for 10 minutes and I felt like I was reborn. It was so illuminating. And I asked Pilar if she would mind if I would copy her structure to do <laughs> class on, on comic book editing. She said it was fine if I don't teach TV writing. And I told her, trust me, <laughs> don't know from TV writing. I took the class on a whim because I thought it might be good for me to see the other side because a lot of TV and screenwriters come to me and they say, oh, I'm gonna pitch you something because I write, I'm a screenwriter and I wanna make a comic book to sell a show and I'm offended. And so I try to explain to them, look, it's a different discipline. It has a few similarities, of course, but I explain to them exactly why it's different and how it's different. And I, haven't ha I have not had too many success stories of working with screenwriters because I think they think I'm a bully. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna take a TV writing class and try to understand from the other side, what am I missing? I didn't realize you needed to come to the table with a TV pilot. 
So I actually spent four weeks turning my next book into a TV pilot. So Fast Times in Comic Book Editing is going to be a comic book first because it's the purest story for this time of my life. It's a love letter to New York City. So it's coming of age in the 90s, crazy things we did in comics, crazy things at conventions. But now it's also a TV pilot that's collecting dust behind me because of Pilar. Sure. I was on her podcast. I pretty much just rave about her nonstop. And she yep. asked me, she asked Pilar, me to her uh, podcast. So. Yeah, no, Pilar is wonderful. I, I was on her podcast a long time ago. I can't even remember what I, I was probably talking about film production uh, at the time. But yeah, the, because I'm one of the people who has, just like Ryland, we both were film first and came to comic books. I get the phone call all the time. I have a screenplay. It's not selling. Should I make a comic book out of it? And I always say the same thing. Are you going to love it as a comic book? Or are you going to spend six months of your life making a brochure for a television show that is just going to make you angry that you spend all this time on it? And, and, and tens of thousands of dollars. Money. Yeah, 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 thousands of dollars. Yeah. I was like, you know, I've done the thing. I have turned up the last TV pilot script I wrote, Drawing Blood, we turned into a comic book. But it was me and Kevin Eastman who love comic books yeah. and were very excited to make a comic book. Right. And as much as we'd like to see that TV show, we love our comic book as yeah. a comic book. We it doesn't have to ever be a television show. It would be cool. fine, you know. And I I have to say, in this day and age, as someone who is just a comics lifer, um, I the art form. I'm not so impressed with the industry anymore, but I, but I'm in it for the art form. Mm -hmm. I say to people, if you love comics, write the comic first because you know what? If it does get picked up and it's a TV show or a film or a video game, that's good too. And you'll be able to take the notes and you'll be able to breathe a sigh of relief because you have your precious baby, which is yeah. the comic, which is well, the purest uh, form of the story. Yeah. If that was your intent from the start. Yeah. And that's what I can't seem to get across in the screenwriter friends and TV friends who hit me up. You know, basically they're asking me to make them a glorified TV deck and that's not yeah. a comic book. Yeah. No. Sorry. Well, and it's, and you know, and the thing is, if you're happy with what you did, I always quote the Raymond Chandler thing. People ask him, how do you feel about what Hollywood has done to your books? And he's like, my, my, my books are right there. I don't, yeah. Yeah, Hollywood yeah. hasn't done any, yeah. you, you can pick up Farewell, My Lovely and read it all the way through. And yeah. it, it ha has nothing to do with any movie ever made. It's, it's yeah. And, 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 and that's what it was for me. It was, it was the opposite of what you're talking about, Shelley, where it was such a godsend uh, to actually see the stories come to life and come to life quickly. Um, and, and of course it was a tough road and, and there was a lot of work put in and um, there was a lot that I had to learn coming from, you know, a, uh, you know, I, I wrote film and TV for 12 years before I ever, you know, uh, decided to wade into the comic waters. It took me a while to learn it, but, but I had written film and TV for 12 years and, and made a good living and, you know, it bought my house and the whole nine yards. Um, after those 12 years, I was very frustrated for a lot of reasons. There was very little out there with my name on it. Um, some of the best stories I've ever written, uh, were sitting on a shelf behind me, you know, uh, uh, just a, a screenplay. It, 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 it wasn't anything. It was a it was a blueprint for something else that no one was ever going to see, right? Yeah. Um, and then also Hollywood, uh, it became so stale, you know. Uh, uh, I I I grew up during the Sundance movement. I fell in love with, you know, I saw Pulp Fiction. I'm like, I want to do that, 
you yeah. know, and, and Hal Hartley and Richard Linkletter and Martin Scorsese. And I want to do that. But by the time I got to the, um, you know, I went to the, the American Film Institute. I got my studio uh, uh, director education. By the time I got spit out in the workforce, Hollywood kind of stopped making those films. Like the the independent film movement dried up. It moved on to yeah. television. It was, it, it, it was different. Um, and I ended up, you know, kind of, I don't know, it, pigeonholed isn't the right word, but I, I ended up as an action movie writer, right? Uh, and I love action movies. Give me Die Hard, give me Lethal Weapon any day of the week. I love them and I love what I do, but there was this other part of me that that wasn't getting nourished, you know? Yeah. Um, and the beauty of comics is that you can kind of, you know, do, you can tell any kind of story, any way, as long as it's good, you'll find an audience for it, right? And in fact, that creativity is encouraged. And it was like this playground for me. It's like, oh, wow, all those things that they tell me I can't do over and over again in, in film and TV, I can do those here. You know, again, yeah. as long as it's compelling. And um, and then it was like, you know, again, I, I would have an idea and I would write it and I would hand it to an artist. It would, it would come to life and then someone would publish it. And then it was something, you know, again, it, it was it, it, uh, if whatever these things yeah. might made into film TV shows down the line. But but they are these amazing comics in my opinion and some readers opinion. And, and that's amazing to me. And it was like, suddenly, suddenly I'm not shouting into the grand Canyon anymore. I'm not yeah. spitting my creativity into a black hole. I am, I, I, I am making something and something worthwhile and something that people enjoy and are moved by. And that was what I needed because, because if I had to do another 12 years of what I was doing, writing stuff that I thought was great, that, you know, either got twisted and turned and you know, mutated into something else or, or, or never got made. You know, again, when you write hundred plus million dollar action movies, like two or three of those get made every year, you know, yeah. very few of them get made. A lot of them get written, very few get made. And, and that was horrible to me. You know, it was almost, uh, you know, I was, I was worried about, I wasn't worried about, I wasn't worried about, you know, dying without money or, 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 or I mean, some people have that fear. My fear was, yes. Uh, yeah, what was that? Okay, I get paid really well, and nobody ever knows that I did this. Um, but now, you know, now I got these comics, and they're going to be around forever. And you know, and and my daughter's kids, uh, you know, sixty years from now can go on whatever the you know can walk into a comic shop, uh, you know, fingers crossed, or 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 pop on you know whatever uh, uh, the Amazon of the day is, and they can order my books. They can order Grandpa's books. You know, that's that's. <laughs> That is immortality to me, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think that as long as there's a mutual respect from each medium, mm -hmm. I think we'll all be okay. You yeah. know, I think, I mean, I'm a, I'm a comics reader. I'm a TV watcher. I, and I'm a film watcher. And I'm a tap dancer. Those are my hobbies. So I think that as long as we can respect each art form, we're okay. I, I find it a bit offensive when I have friends come to me and say, I don't even understand what you do as a comic book editor, but can you help me do this? You know, yeah. there's a there's a way of coming into it with respect that I think it has been missing. So it's nice to hear that, like, you understand it's a different discipline. So maybe there are some different rules. Maybe there are things that you work towards. And yeah. it's funny, Pilar and I talked about that on the podcast, which was great. And she actually shared my new favorite tip that I was, I was on a show the other day and they had asked me to give like my new favorite, like four or five word tip to aspiring creators. And I, and again, I stole it from Pilar and I, I have to say something so funny. Pilar is a force of nature and I will recommend her class 
to my comic students. But my favorite thing about Pilar is that when I told her that I'm five foot two, she said, oh, you're taller than me. So I said to her, yeah. wow, okay, that's very rare to meet someone taller than me or shorter than me. But her tip was nod and take the note. And that is so important. I added two words in front of that, which is deep breath. Because I think in, in every situation you're in, whether you're texting quickly to someone or you're posting a tweet, if you take a deep breath, you can correct a typo. You can think if you really want to say that or not. Maybe you shouldn't. Is it going to be something harmful or hateful? You know, and when it comes to an editor's notes, take the note. You know, just like you might, it might make your story a ton better. Maybe that note isn't even going to work on the specific page that your editor mm -hmm. pointed to. Maybe it's a note that you actually can find a place two pages before to adjust something that satisfies the editor's concern. So another thing I stole from Pilar, she's probably going to come beat me up. She can't, by the way. Yeah, because she might try to. <laughs> shorter, so she might try to. Um, but it's a really good bit of advice for people, and uh, I will I will leave you with that unless you have other questions for me. What is what is the lab? What is the other piece of advice, or was that it? The take the deep breath. Oh, deep breath and take the note. Yeah. Now the one thing I was going to say about that mutual respect thing all these screenwriters who are coming to you if someone came to them and said i want to be a screenwriter yeah. and they said oh have you read robert mckee and they said no have you read sid field no have you read uh vicky king no did you take polar's class no so, sometimes it's worse it's like have you i mean some of these people come and they've never read a goddamn comic book you know what yes. i'm saying or, yeah. or 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 they haven't read the 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 thousand that they should be reading it's it, it's like you know it's like they come to you and say hey i want to be a tv writer it's like well great have you have you seen an episode of of television yeah. oh no i don't own, don't own one but you know i hear as well and, and let me i have to tell you sid field is sid field action is character i mean that those three words changed my life in college, yeah. you know, and that's that you will find that story in Filth and Grammar, by the way. Yeah, David you and I, I are the, you and I are the you and I are the Sid Field generation, not the Robert McKee generation. He comes after Well, I went to the Robert McKee class and actually Brooke Shields sat three seats behind me. <laughs> in the in the early days of DC Comics, that was actually a really big plus. You know, if if, oh, yeah. if your boss thought highly of you, DC would pay for the Robert McKee um school of um you know screenwriting so i yeah. attended that class as well i have to tell you though um I, and i have a question here this segues sure. into a question you guys both talked about having your work published did you have editors david you said you you know yeah. do your editor do, or, do you as the writer find your collaborator or is your editor bringing ideas to you depends uh when i started out and i hadn't worked with anybody uh, Joe Ryban at Dynamite would assign me people. And the third person he assigned me was Dave Acosta. And on the fourth book I worked on, I said, I would like Dave Acosta again because he was excellent and we have a great rapport and we work well together. Since the more I do this, the more I'm like, Elvira and Har I write Joe and say, Elvira and Horrorland is going to be me and Italian artist Sylvia Califano. 
because she's awesome. (laughs) And uh, she's done some drawings of Elvira that Elvira has approved. So that's who I want. And that's what's going to get. But one of the things I was going to bring in just to finish up my previous thought was when Joe said, I'm going to try you out on your first comic book and accepted my pitch. Mm -hmm. I knew enough about comics to figure out what five issues worth of material might sound like in a pitch. But I then walked to my bookshelf and said, it's time to reread Scott McCloud. Since I have never written a comic book in my life, I think I'm going to reread Scott McCloud now. And I went and got the Eisners and I went and, you know, the the Eisner books. So like I read seven books on comic book writing before I sat down to type my first script, because that's what you do when you were, it's like, you wouldn't make a film having never read a single book about filmmaking ever in your life. Although in, in this day and age, people will just Google shortcuts and sure. drop and clips. And, and you know what? For the real visionaries out there, that could work. But those are one in a million. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's what, that's what I, I think. I think, um, yeah, research is important. I will tell you another thing that Pilar shared in her class. You're going to think I'm obsessed with Pilar. She's going to actually, she's going to put out a restraining order against me. This is a really good plug for her class. It's, this, <laughs> it is a, it's a great class. Her. And she's a great yeah. human being. I, that I, I love. owe her that. I owe it. Yeah. I owe her that. She also wants to tap dance. And I told her I'd be happy to teach her, but she said she'll think about it. Um, we'll talk things- about that off air. Cause I also, I took tap dancing once and I want to get back to it. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> there you go. Okay. That'll, that'll be for, that'll be um, after the show. So yeah. Pilar, um, now, now I forget what I was going to say. Someone oh, mentioned sorry. that they actually like tap dancing. It's shocking to me. Um, I'm forgetting exactly what, oh, great. I will, I, I will ramp for a moment. My mother was a tap dancer. Oh. And she had a knee injury when she was in her 20s. She was doing Broadway showgirl stuff. She actually shared a, a dressing room with Catwoman, with oh, Julie wow. Newmar. We would watch Batman when I was a kid, and she would go, I've seen her naked. Uh, which I thought was very, that's my mother for you. Uh, But then she became a women's rights activist after she blew her knee out, which was, you know, a a good path for her. The solid career transition. I I do remember what I was going to say. I remember what I was going to say. So in Pilar's class, there were a lot of actors. There were about 60 people in the class, lots of actors. And that one of the, I love this question and it's, and it's informed my own class that's coming up starting June 4th, by the way, again, anyone interested? Here we go. So Pilar, the student said, Pilar, I'm an actor. I know nothing about writing. Hit me with your top suggestions for books. And she said, no. And I love that. She said, I don't want you to get lost down the rabbit hole of research. So while you're taking my class, no, just listen in class, do the work, review the notes. Don't go crazy. Stephen King on writing or whatever, you know, whatever she said. And that's why my class is no experience necessary. I'm not even trying to sell my book, Filth and Grammar, although I'm going to try to sell it again here now, but (laughs) I'm not selling that to join the class. I tell people to come with a red pen and a notebook because I'm going to use things, you know, I'm going to use at least one important page from each chapter, but I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to have a lot of practical application that people will be able to see in the class or on my website. 
so that they can see the red ink on the page. Because I think, you know, David, you had asked if this is the first book on making comics from an editor's point of view. And I'm pretty sure it is because I mm -hmm. went, I went to look, I went, I did my research. I wanted to, I wanted to be the first. I, I'd like to think it's unprecedented, but you know, there was a, a, there was part of me that wondered how much red ink should I put on the page? So there's a bit and there's more and more as you get into the editing sections. And I even wrote some things out in red pen because <laughs> of course you can edit comics with an editing program, but you know what? If you really want to concentrate, you are going to sit down with a red pen and you are just going to get lost in the story on the page. And that's how it's done. So script notes, there are going to be, is going to be a lot of adjunct material in the class. Two hours isn't a lot of time to talk about anything. Mm. So I'm going to keep it moving, but I'm going to always have those materials for people who want to see more, you know, see more of, um, uh, of what it looks like to actually edit lettering versus mm -hmm. editing roughs versus editing scripts. So I hope it's going to be one of those classes that people take that they just find you know, I hope they're as illuminated as I was 10 minutes into Pilar's class, because you can bet when the first class ended, David, I called your sister. I said, this is a phone call kind of thing. You need to hear this. And I thanked her a hundred times. Yeah, no, Pilar is amazing. And, uh, and I remember when she wasn't doing that. I remember when she was a struggling actress mm. and was interested in she actually called me up. My brother-in-law was at Universal in development at the time. She said, can I call your brother-in-law and ask for information about being a script reader? Mm. And she okay. became a script reader right. through that. But again, it's about talk to the person who knows how it's done, <laughs> if at yeah. all possible. She said, yeah. do you think I'll be bothering him? I said, no, 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 call, call him up. He'll, he'll, he'll give you a hand. And her entire career, comes from that. When I when I knew her in college, she was a theater major, I think. You know, and that's Yep. And again, and I wrote my first comic book 8 years ago at the age of 49. Like there's Whoa. no there's no moment where it's the right moment. It's just when right. it comes along, it comes along. You know. And and I think it that just goes to show you also just like the other little bit of advice I'll leave people with is don't be a tool. Be nice. Absolutely. You don't know whose help you might need along the way. And I think that in comics, that's advice that people need to take. Yeah. And stop bragging on social media. You know, you're, you know, you should be a little bit more humble. And that's just to everybody out there. Yeah. And when I, you know, as a freelance editor now, I have a very regimented way of working. You know, I, I've, I'm, I'm a day job person by nature. And so, you know, I, I used to joke to my freelancers and, and say to them that, that I'd be the worst freelancer. I would stay up all night watching TV and listening to music and I would sleep all day. And so, you know, my husband's a freelancer, so it is not easy to get out of bed in the morning. Our son is 17. You know, he does his own thing. So I'm a terrible freelancer unless I maintain the schedule that I had as a as a I would say nine to five, but it was never nine to five, a 10 to 10 person. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I get it done. I, yeah. I structure my day a certain way or else I don't get it done. I can, I can tell you, my father wrote over 200 published novels. And when people ask me, oh my God, how did he do that? I say, he woke up at seven in the morning, went out for a cup of coffee, came back by 8.30, wrote until lunchtime, ate a sandwich 
and then wrote until dinner time. He was not up at 2 a.m. writing 200 novels. He was done in time to sit at dinner with his family every day. But it's because he sat and did it for eight hours a day, five days a week. And yeah, every once in a while you hit a deadline and you got to work till 10 o'clock or midnight or two in the morning. And I have to say it has helped me enormously since I got married. My wife is a union costumer, costume maker on television shows. I realized before we got married, I was working at three in the morning. I was doing all of the bad, lazy freelancer shit. And then I realized, and now that you're married, your wife gets to come home from a long day at work and look at the back of your head while you write. (laughs) Maybe you should try to be done with the day's writing by six o'clock when she gets home from work so you can have a life where you enjoy yes. the things and have a, and take a weekend off that you spend yes. with your loved ones and doing fun things instead of, oh, I get pages, pages, pages. So, yeah. you know, that's, I, I'm completely with you on as much fun as it is to be a freelancer and be able to work whenever you want to. Actually, working 40 hours a week like it's yeah. a job is the best freelance advice you can give anyone. And also, if I'm if I may add another one here, it, you have to know when to call a page a finished page, and that's where your editor becomes your partner in crime. Yeah, because like Rylan was saying earlier, you could have your best story behind you on a shelf collecting dust, and at least it's finished. You know, there's a lot to be said about finishing an idea. So part of Filth and Grammar is also like from idea to execution. And when I teach the class, I'm going to be sharing with the class my method. You know, it can be, maybe it's a little wacky. Um, As a writer at the moment, uh, I write in my pajamas for the first hour of the day. That's me. That's what I like to do. Uh, My husband gets the tea, uh, which, you know, he's British. He makes the best tea. So that's on him. But that's how I start my day every day. And even if I free write and it's crap, or if I free write a love letter to Ian McCulloch of Echo and the Bunnymen, because right now I just think he's my favorite post-punk performer on earth next to Joe Strummer. That's okay. Still, it's still writing. I think that a lot of times people start and stop projects because they're afraid. They're afraid to finish and they're afraid that what everyone else is going to think. Yep. We don't have time anymore for that. We, there's no time. You know, we just barely survived a pandemic that's still going on. So I hope my class is appealing to people listening because I want to inspire people to keep creating. And that's the ultimate goal. I think that's that's a great note to go out on. The class starts June 4th. Yes. People can sign up for it now. They can. And Dolphin Grammar is going to be going out to people. Are you starting another Kickstarter soon? Yes. yes. I will be start- as soon as Dolphin Grammar lands into the arms and hands of, of my wonderful backers, which there are more than 2,500 backers. That's great. But of course, quite a few are digital backers, but they're backers. You know, anyone who contributed anywhere from a nickel to $500, thank you. I say thank you so much because everybody's um, contribution mattered and everybody who shared the campaign, Rylan, you said you were kickstarting, you know that. Anyone who shares your campaign is doing you a great favor. Um, But yes, um, once 
I'm going to be kickstarting in June. I'm going to be kickstarting Fast Times and Comic Book Editing. It's the middle Great. part of the trilogy. The final part of the trilogy is the memoir. I am not revealing anything about that yet. <laughs> I will tell you that Fast Times is so much fun because some of it's cutting room floor. Because Filth and Grammar could have been 300 pages, but I couldn't afford sure. to make it that so if you like Filth and Grammar, it's actually, this is the first time I'm talking about it, so tell me what you think. Filth and Grammar is 80% comics as craft, how to make comics from the editor's point of view. 20% a day in the life of the comic book ingenue, what it was like being a young editor in New York City. Fast Times and comic book editing is the opposite. It's 80% short stories, and it's 20% tips and tricks of editing as a craft. I like that. I think that's a good compliment. Okay. I think you. That, yeah. No, you you don't you don't need my you don't you don't you have only seal of approval. But yeah, no, that's that, that's, a, that's a and and what would you do in the third volume? Well, the third volume is the memoir. It's what okay. I've been wanting to write about about you know being a woman in a male dominated field. Mm -hmm. um, rising up the ranks and then also what the landscape has become for everyone you know as you guys know politically we've gone back into the dark ages and that's not just now you know that's been happening for the past 10 years we've right. been slowly losing our rights as humans for all types of things not just reproductive rights but sure. so many things and if you look around you again no offense but you see people in comics at the very top, and it's very rare for that person to be uh, someone who is not a middle-aged white man. And comics were headed in great directions at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s. And somewhere along the way, things changed horribly. So I kind of want to look back and dissect it and see what happened and see how we can fix that. Because mm -hmm. I don't want the next generation to get pigeonholed. And I frankly don't want comics to be dull again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's an admirable mission. And I think yeah. there is, there's a huge audience out there for comics that aren't the middle-aged white guy comics. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a giant, unbelievable audience. I think the most positive change I've seen in our industry, you know, I used to make a joke that when I would go to comic book conventions in the seventies, as a kid, there were two women there, the one dressed as Red Sonia and the one not dressed as Red Sonia. And then years yep. later, someone said to me, that was Wendy Penny. And I went, oh my God, <laughs> it was Wendy Penny dressed as Red Sonia and I must've seen yes. her a thousand times. But the best thing is you go to a con now and it's, yes. it's, you know, and I always say women were, all the women I knew as a kid, all the girls I knew as a kid were huge nerds and comic book fans. Yep. They found those spaces off-putting for good reason. Yes. I found the off-putting for that same reasons, honestly, because yeah. I, like, I, you know, there are a million reasons I never participated that much in sports when I was a kid, but mostly it was, there are no girls here, guys. Why are we do, why, why would we want to do this thing where there are no girls? I don't, I, I don't get that. So. Well, I, and I think that women, I think that Vertigo again came through yeah. for women because I think Neil Gaiman, Sandman, made it okay to for a, a woman to walk into a comic book store and pick up books that actually yep. she could relate to where she would see characters that were cool like her and that suddenly it wasn't just oh the girlfriend of a guy who read comics 
So yeah, I think that the 90s were great for things like that, for getting more women into the comic book store. And if I can just say that Raina Telgemeier was the greatest oh, thing to happen to comics absolutely. in the 21st century. Yep, I think that's, know, that's a fair assessment. Yeah. That's how I feel. She's done a great job and educating comics and getting kids into comics at a young age yep. um, through, through books like hers and others is, is a wonderful thing. But I know that people in our generation and people that make indie comics like us, we can all do better. So let's, oh, let's yeah. step up and do it. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think the, I, I agree with you that we have taken a step back in the comic shop. Uh, the, the, the hope for me is, is on, it's on, you know, Kickstarter. It's, yeah. on, it's in places like that where anyone and everyone can go there and, and they can see themselves in a project, you know, uh, and not just once, but two, three, ten, twenty times, you know, uh, uh, you will find your book on Kickstarter. Uh, no, no matter where you're coming from, who you are, who you want to be. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that is glorious. And, and it's why I love, uh, you know, it's why I love the platform so much. Yes. And I think crowdfunding as a platform is going to get bigger and better too, because I do think that there are now smaller pockets of companies that are, are sampling the landscape. So mm -hmm. I do think it's an exciting time. And Part of my course, I talk about that as well, because self-publishing, you know, you really can do it, even if it's just your mom who's going to back you or your grandparents, yeah. right? Or your friends. Cool. Like, it's a great business experience. And I think there, that schools should actually consider um, art schools, for instance. Uh, cool. I know that when when I kickstart, the community means a lot to me. So I'm often more likely to back uh, a SCAD project where a group of young artists are putting together an anthology. I picked up one that was great. I will back them before I'll back maybe a big famous person's, you know, the berserker. Keanu Reeves. Reeves is doing just fine. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't, he doesn't need my $20, but you know what? Those kids at SCAD, they not only need my $20, but they need somebody who's in comics to say, bravo. You guys are awesome and brave and like kick it up. So I'm thrilled to help the people that kickstart during my campaign time, you know, because it's community. And I think if anything, I'll leave you with one other note and then I have to run, but comics is collaboration. So if you don't play well with others, you might not want to consider it. It really is one of those mediums where you got to pass the baton. Yeah. You no, I do. I do a, a sometimes at cons I do a class on networking and I literally start with ask not what comics can do for you ask what you can do for comics like it's a community yeah. and you have to give into that community you can't just try and take from it yes but and and to debunk another platitude from comics the stan the stan lee comics will break your heart well screw it walk away and do your own comics yeah. Like you can't let people in comics get you down because the industry will probably try to screw it. Yeah, I think, what, I, I think what was really being expressed there is publishers will break your heart. I don't think it's comics that have broken anyone's heart in particular. You well, know? you'd be surprised. So yeah. all, I'm saying, all I'm saying to people out there is just do things your way, get it done, get it finished and move forward. Just but do you, man. Just do you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Shelly. This was great. Uh, oh, it was fun. Thank you guys for inviting me. Of course. Uh, 
look up the classes, look up and keep an eye out for that uh, Kickstarter. Uh, Ryland, where, where can people find you? Uh, I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That is R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and uh, <laughs> sat away with it. And so now I have to spell it for you. Um, but yeah, you can find my books, uh, uh, Aberrant, Banjax, and Suicide Jockeys in fine comic shops everywhere. Uh, my Kickstarter books, The Jump and The Peacekeepers, uh, can be found via my Backerkit site. If you go to thejump2.backerkit.com, that's the jump one word and the number two, thejump2.backerkit.com, you'll find that there. And, um, you know, check my social media, Fashang Origins. Uh, it will have closed by the time this airs, but it will soon be available via Backerkit. It may be uh, available right now. Uh, it's a great book, so go out and check it out. Some, some wuxia kung fu action. And you can find me at davidavalonefreelance.com that branches off to all of the other things. And today in your comic book shops, Elvira in Horrorland number one, go pick it up. And until next time, thank you for joining us for the writer's block. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks. Bye. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.